Good morning. So bad. Uh, all right, so uh, we are in Ephesians uh, uh, chapter 2 and going to finish up uh, with that. For the last couple of months, uh, we've been in the book of Ephesians, and you know that one of the themes that we've had so far has been to look at what our blessings are in Christ. And um, I think it would be helpful to, to go through and just to, to we'll back up and, and just, we've looked at these in detail, but let's just kind of let these blessings wash over us. Now, if you'll just start with, um, with Ephesians uh, verse 1 and just start reading. And when you, when, as you start scanning, if you see a blessing... I want you to raise your hand. I want you to say what verse it is and just read the words that are the spiritual blessing there. All right, we'll do this kind of quick. It doesn't have to be in order. So you just start, whoever uh, starts with uh, chapter one is, if you get to a blessing, one of the blessings that we have in Christ, raise your hand. All right, we got one already. Go ahead. May his blessing be peace with you be yours. All right. All right, blessing of peace. Next. What we got, Linda? Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Good. Say what verse it's in. Next. Number three, every spiritual blessing in Christ. Great. Eddie? Uh, seven, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Redemption, forgiveness, riches of his grace. What else? Verse 5, he's predestined us to be adopted. We've been adopted as sons. Thank you, Kim. Forgiveness of sins, verse 8. Amen, forgiveness of sins. Verse 8, he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Wisdom and insight. Verse 4, he chose us before the foundation. We should be holy and blameless before him. Chosen to be holy and blameless. What else? Verse 13, we're included in Christ. Included in Christ, sealed in him with the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, he is our peace. Our peace, our inheritance. What else? Hope. Hope. Blessings of being in Christ. What else you got? Verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. We get to know the mystery. Who else? Thank you. Verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. We get to know him better. Else. Verse 18. Your hearts may be enlightened. 
Verses 18 and 19. Yeah, I've highlighted almost all of that for those verses. Anything in chapter 2? The grace to be saved in the first place. Amen. we didn't start out that way, right? We were, we were dead. Verse 4, because of his great love for us. The love of God. There we go, from last week. Barrier is gone. All right. Well, I guess that's a good place since uh, Pat's t- taken us to uh, our passage for today. Um, if you ever uh, start to wonder about, um, you know, sometimes being a Christian and walking the Christian walk is not always easy. And if you ever need a reminder of uh, just a, a taste of what it means to you uh, to be in Christ, um, flip back to First and Second Ephesians, and or Ephesians one and two rather, and and just let that kind of wash over you a little bit. And um, uh, we've got blessings in the past. We've got blessings that are with us today. We've got things to look forward to that are blessings. Um, certainly we have we have been blessed. So let's continue that. Uh, look at uh, another aspect of uh, the work of, of Jesus. And um, uh, we'll back up a little bit uh, to verse 17 and, um, and just look at a, at a couple of uh, comments uh, left over from last week. It says in verse 17, And he came, that is Jesus, and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So one little kind of almost parenthetical comment, it says, and Jesus preached peace to those who were far and to those who were near. Um, Jesus himself mostly preached to those who were near, right? I mean, we went through Mark, and it was all, with the exception of maybe a detour through Samaria, it was all pretty close, was, was his teaching. Um, uh, not, not, not real far. And so in here you kind of see Paul uh, saying in effect that those who are preaching Jesus as he was, um, it's Christ that's preaching through them. So when it says Jesus preached 
peace near and far. In effect, he's, he's including those who are preaching Jesus. And I don't see any reason by extension that that, that doesn't extend to us. You know, when, when we preach Jesus, so to speak, when we're talking about the blessings of Jesus to the... Uh, uh, blessings of Jesus to those who need to be in Christ. Um, in effect, that's Christ preaching through us to those who are far, and uh, we get to participate uh, in that. And then this notion of preaching peace, isn't that interesting? For he preached peace far and near. Um, there's a lot involved with preaching peace. We know that he also preached repentance for the forgiveness of sins, right? Um, so it wasn't just peace, hey, let's all get along. It was peace, let's deal with the root causes of conflict. Um, I think James says, you know, all this quarrels and strife among you, it's because you want your own way, it's, you know, because you're all selfish little people. Um, the only real peace is the peace that comes through grace, repentance, reconciliation. Um, we saw in our earlier verses. So this, you know, everybody wants peace nowadays, right? I mean, we've got conflict among countries, um, in our own families, you know, you can have conflict among cousins. Uh, you can have conflict both far and near. Um, but the the antidote for that is is still the same. It's the gospel, and uh, there's grace, there's repentance, there's you know that's that's the the full message of peace. It's not just glossing over our differences; it's dealing with the root cause. and And you can tell that you know when when somebody has wronged you and they make a a real heartfelt confession and say I'm sorry. Is it hard to forgive them? Not at all. You, you, you want to forgive them before they even finish with their apology if it's sincere. Um, of course, the reverse of that's also true. Somebody can make a five-minute apology, but if you're just not buying it, it doesn't really matter. Um, so it's all, it's all about the heart. And um, uh, this peace that, that Jesus preached and that we, uh, in effect, preach uh, on his behalf um, has to include uh, heart issues. It has to include uh, for real reconciliation dealing with our sin. Like it said in, in verse 1 of chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. You know, we had to acknowledge that. All right, so let's, um, let's move on um, a little bit um, because we're going to get into this this concept, as Pat said, about aliens and strangers and that sort of thing, and it kind of goes with this far and near theme. Uh, if you think about it, um, we tend to value things that are near, right? Um, uh, you may have seen license plates, no matter where you go, it'll say, well, I'm a native of Colorado, or I'm a native of Florida. I think those are at least two states where there are a lot of non-natives, so the natives want to really stake their claim that they're a native. Um, well, this near and far thing, um, 
we tend to um, look highly on those that are natives, where we are, and we don't look so well on people that are from afar. Um, now, you know, if you were a, um, say, a native of Charlotte, um, there might be parts of Charlotte you wouldn't be all that familiar with, but you'd still be a native. Um, this gets into, uh, I guess we might as well go ahead and look at this verse 18. It says, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, verse 19, so strangers and aliens. So if you were a native of Charlotte, there might be parts of the city that might be strange to you, but you wouldn't be a foreigner to Charlotte. On the other hand, you may have lived in Charlotte for 20 years, but if you are a citizen of Italy, or you're still a foreigner, even though you're not a stranger to it. It's a little bit kind of an interesting way to look at it. Um, but no matter where you're from or where you live, we do tend to value this localness, right? And even if, if uh, you know, your claim to, uh, you know, local culture is, you know, NASCAR Cracker Barrel, um, you still try to be proud of that, right? Um, well, the, the interesting thing is that we've, we've seen in, in Galatians, we kind of got this notion that the, the Jews kind of looked down their nose at the, at the Greeks because uh, they didn't have the law, they didn't have the commandments, they didn't have the temple, right? We kind of got that sort of a feel. Well, what we sometimes lose is that the Greeks, and, and here we are in Ephesus, the Greeks actually did the same thing to the Jews, they kind of looked down their nose to them, too, because um, they didn't think they were very cultured. So if you were Greek and you spoke Greek and you were more cultured, in fact, they called anyone who didn't, who wasn't Greek, they called them barbarians. Apparently, uh, the word barbar in, in Greek means a stutterer. They thought you were just, you know, not very eloquent. So they... You know, there, there was as much coming from the, the Greek side as there was from the Jew, Jewish side. So they, they each had their claim to fame, so to speak, um, and they both looked down the other person. And what we saw last week was that, that everybody had to lay that aside. Everybody had to, to come together so that there wasn't this, you know, uh, uh, condescension and uh, uh, bragging and all that um, that was some of the barriers that that were being broken down um, all right let's look then more closely at um, these last three verses beginning with verse 19 uh, pastor Stedman uh, Ray Stedman that then I often I use as a, as a resource um, he did a sermon on Ephesians, and it's, it's not because I have a lot of stuff on my bookshelf, but I, I've got this um, uh, piece of software where I can look at a lot of commentaries on things. And this particular passage, I looked at about 10 different commentaries. None of them gave the framework for understanding this as good as one from one of Pastor Stedman's sermons. Um, he says, in verse 19, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. 
So it says one way to think of this is this concept of your citizens of God's kingdom. All right, so let's think about that. It's going to, um, we're going to see things get more and more intimate as we look at the different metaphors for what it means to be connected with God. So we're, we're citizens. Um, a citizen, of course, has all the, the privileges of, of where, they, where they live. Just as we've read these blessings, those are, those are the benefits that we get for being uh, citizens of God's uh, kingdom. Um, there's a privilege there. There's status there. Um, we're not just natives. We're also not just um, people who know a lot, this strangers and foreigners concept. We're instantly in, right? We're instantly in. Um, if you can't relate to that, just picture your average middle school young lady who wants nothing more than to be in, right? And there's nothing worse than being out, of course. Um, I think some of the evil people in the world are, are middle school girls. Um, you want to be in. Well, in Christ, we are really in. We are citizens of God's kingdom. The next metaphor, he moves quickly, he says, and members of the household of God. So now we've gone from just being citizens to actually being part of the family. And we know that throughout Scripture, Christians are, are uh, mentioned in terms of family language. Um, even earlier today, we talked about uh, this concept of being adopted. And I love um, uh, how Paul elaborates on that in Romans 8. Same concept, though, from Ephesians 1. He says in Romans 8.15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received receive the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, or Daddy. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We get to call God Daddy. We can, we can instantly be fellow heirs with Christ, recipients of all the benefits of being part of the family. We are part of God's family. And then verse 20, the third metaphor, and you might think, is this a step back? But it's, it's not, as we'll see. Verse 20 moves into building language. Now, I know some people really like the whole concept of building things. Um, verse 20, it says, Members of the household of God, then he shifts, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So now we have building language, and it's, you're going to see it's temple language. Temple language. Um, we know the Jews were all about the temple, right? Why was the temple such a big deal to the Jews? What made it such a big deal? Access to God. 
That's where you met God, exactly. Access to God. That's where God was. That's where God said he would be. I am with you here in this place. Um, that's where you went to be with God. So it's temple language. So to the Jews, when Paul started talking about temple language, well, this is new temple language. This isn't the temple they were used to talking about. This is, diff- this is a different temple he's talking about. Well, don't forget, the Greeks in the region of Ephesus, they had a big temple too, right? They had a huge temple, the biggest of the world. The temple to Artemis, our goddess Diana, the Jew, uh, Roman Greek name, whatever. It was a huge part of their culture. There were celebrations that would last a month long where the city would come to a standstill. You know, when Paul preached against, uh, against the carryings-on there, the whole city went bonkers. You know, the temple was big in that culture as well. And here Paul is, is trying to, to use that language to bring both groups together and say, you know, there's a new temple. There's a new temple. So look how he describes it. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Um, there's a, the commentators I read are kind of split on who these prophets are. Uh, some say, well, this is the, uh, the prophets of the Old Testament, um, and, uh, which makes sense, right? There's a, you know, we've quoted from Isaiah all over the place, uh, as we'll see in a few minutes, um, so certainly there are Old Testament language that is freely quoted by Paul. Uh, some people say, well, these are, um, these are New Testament prophets. Um, you know, the, the people that are, you know, getting out the new word of the kingdom. And um, I guess you can make a, a case either way. And honestly, it doesn't really matter because the next phrase tells you the source of all this. It says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Um, this may ring a bell um, to many of you. Probably the, the most extensive passage where uh, we, we see this concept of Jesus being the cornerstone um, is in 1 Peter 2. You might want to flip over there. Uh, it's kind of a lengthy passage um, talking about Jesus as the cornerstone. And there are passages in Psalm and in Isaiah where it talks about uh, some of which is quoted in this verse. Uh, the stone which the builder rejected, um, and so forth. First um, Peter two four it says, "As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and, pres- and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture: Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone." chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the quote there, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So uh, Jesus, um, there's cornerstone uh, benefits, and then it's also a place of um, conviction, you might say. Uh, of course, in today, uh, I don't know if any of you have seen the, the laying of a cornerstone. Uh, 
you know, if you're building something, there, there's all these, um, all these ways to, to mark the progress, right? So you have your ground bake breaking with your, with your ceremonial shovels, right? Which doesn't really mean anything, but you have your ceremonial groundbreaking. Um, you may have the laying of the cornerstone. You may have the, I think it was at the, the new um, uh, World Trade Center, you know, the laying a final beam on top, you know, and then when it's all said and done, then what do you do? Yeah, the ribbon cutting to, you know, it's like, let's celebrate this thing. Um, but the cornerstone nowadays is a lot of times ceremonial. It may have the dates of construction and maybe a time capsule. Sometimes they'll put things in there. Um, so it's more ceremonial than anything. But back in the day, the cornerstone was the way that you got everything to line up. It's how you made sure your angles were true and that things were level and it was the cornerstone that was the key to whether this was going to be a good building or not. And that's the concept when it says Christ Jesus himself being in the cornerstone. So it says when we're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, that entire foundation would have flown from, would have flowed rather from, uh, from Jesus, uh, Christ himself. And um, uh, that's the... The, the gravity of it, and I've not been to uh, Israel, but the, the, that in the original temple, and of course it was built in different phases, but some of those stones were just massive, hundreds and hundreds of tons. Um, so when you think about the foundation of this new temple and, and uh, flowing from, from Christ himself, um, big, big stuff. And it says, and here's where it gets interesting, verse 21 back in Ephesians now in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we quote not uncommonly 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 6, where you know our body is the temple of the Lord, right? But here it's talking about corporately together as believers we are a temple for God, a dwelling place for God. Think about that. As high and lofty as the Jews looked at the temple, and with all the grandeur and the um, fame that the Ephesians had in their own temple, the Greeks' temple, Here we're talking about a holy temple made by the people who have together been in Christ and it says you are also being built together. So this is an ongoing thing. It's an ongoing thing. We're, it, some translations say fashioned together. You know, as we rub shoulders with each other and as we communicate with each other and as we say our I'm sorry's and as we give our encouragements and as we do things in Jesus name as we present the gospel as we bring people that are hurting into our midst and work on them and love on them we are being fit together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit uh, as I said last week uh, Paul's laying foundation um, regarding the church and, and how you organize a church and what's the culture of a church supposed to be like and, 
and uh, what are some of the functions of the church? And you can see uh, some of that language just kind of would be guiding us together and how to how to think. So uh, I think this this has several implications and. Uh, I think you can you can start to think about this. Okay, if we are being fit together to be a dwelling place for God, should that affect how we function as a church? It should. And I think it, we'll I'll get your comments on this uh, in a second. Um, I want to read a, a little section from a, a commentator. It says. Um, It says, if we remember the church's people, several implications follow. It says, number one, church is no longer perceived as a program that some people put on for others to watch. The people are participants joining together to worship and to have fellowship with God who is present with them as a group. Number two, ministry is for everyone, not just the clergy. The people are the temple in which God dwells. Number three, value is placed on people. Sometimes the impression is given that people are indispensable as long as a building is maintained and the programs keep going. As the average church in the United States devotes the majority of its funds to its building and its internal operations, what if we invested in people as much as in our buildings and systems? Then he goes on later and he says, communities can exist for a variety of reasons, but the Christian church exists only because of Christ and his purposes. Christianity is a religion centered on a person. The church gathers around the character of Christ, not the characteristics of the people. Apart from the significance of his death and resurrection, the church has no reason to exist. The church is a community and has traditions and rituals, but it is not about any of these things. The church is about Jesus Christ, and the other pieces of the picture exist to display the role of Christ in the church. So if we're being built together in Christ to be God's temple. What implications does that give us as far as what we think about church? Anything come to mind? It's one of those things that, I mean, it's kind of deep, right? It's not. I'm not saying that you would have an off-the-cuff answer, but um, I think it certainly affects our definition of church. Um, we still, and I do it all the time, we still think of church as a building. You know, I'm guilty of that. Where are you going? I'm going to church, right? Um, so it probably needs to infuse our language a little bit more. It probably ought to affect how we treat each other a little bit more, right? That, you know, we're all stones under construction, you know, in various, various uh, uh, levels of polish, <laughs> Uh, some people, uh, I feel like the chisel's still on me. Some people might just be, uh, you know, with a little sandpaper. Um, but we're all being worked and fitted together. I think it um, might change how we look at other churches in our community, church bodies, that we probably have way more similarities than we do differences. And as opportunities come up for us to celebrate those things that unify us would probably be better than to quibble too much about the things that separate us. Well, that's the one thing I would 
come together and compromise right. because I think everyone wants to have a, a good church. Right. And, and uh, but the only way you're gonna have a good church is is be that strong heart. And sometimes you have to listen to others. You know. Yeah. There's. There's a spirit of unity, which is not always the same as uniformity, right? We all aren't going to look the same and act the same and speak the same. But we should have a oneness of purpose, you know. Um, and I think the closer we get to the mind of Christ, the closer we do start to look more like each other. So I think that's a great point, um, Mike. Um, in a similar way, not just within our own walls, but, you know, maybe we ought to give a little pause when we do maybe criticize another group of believers, you know, and, um, you know, we haven't always walked in their shoes and we may not always hear the full story and um, we might want to give a little bit more benefit of the doubt and, and um, you know, we'd probably take offense if somebody said something about our group of people and maybe they didn't know the whole story and, you know, we, we probably ought to be cautious about doing the same thing. But I think it, it should make us... Um, uh, both humbled and somewhat proud to think that God would be willing to hang out with us, right? <laughs> um, and it might change how we act, you know, and I'm not just, you know, talking about when I was growing up and they say, what was the number one thing you heard? Well, don't run. <laughs> well, why? Well, you, you just don't run in church. <laughs> I don't know why you don't run in church. Yeah, you'd like for your family to get along, right? I mean, um, even at the holidays, you know, you'd like them to get along. Um, yeah, you know, and God wants that for his children. Um, so. It should always start with prayer, though. I mean, because you start with prayer, then God's way in. So. And if you listen. All right, so, so this is a setup. So what is it about prayer that that helps, say, the unity in a church? It humbles people. Yeah, it, I mean, I think you're exactly right. It makes, I mean, it's putting, everybody putting their eyes on God, not their selves. So one of the, we, we know that one of the benefits of being part of God's household, to go back to the earlier metaphor, is that God's our daddy, right? We can ask for things. It says God, he's a good daddy. He's not going to, you know, you know, an earthly father, if you pray for a, Fish, he's not going to give you a snake. It says, how much more so will your heavenly Father do for you? So, you know, we can pray to get things from God, but what it really does, I think you're right on the mark, Tim, is that when we're in prayer, God starts to align our heart with his. And he starts to get us back on the right page. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit can really create that unity. I, I think that's right on the mark. And... I think we have to be open to uh, renovation and change. We have to be careful not to get in a rut, especially you know where we are in, in, in our church today. So to keep with the building metaphor, sometimes you have to remodel. Sometimes you have to clean house. <laughs> uh, sometimes you have to uh, do some spring cleaning. I guess that's that's true. Um, and uh, and houses look different at different <clears throat> stages, right? Um, but uh, I think the one thing we want to make sure is that this temple is not 
supposed to be one that's a container for God, but a vehicle for God, right? It should be doors open for business where we're walking out to the world and yes, there are going to be times we need to be bring people in and love on them and, and expose them to a healthy fellowship. Um, uh, it's, it's definitely not a closed-in place um, for a living God. Um, anybody else? Good conversation. Thank you. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege of being indwelt by you not just individually, but being indwelt as uh, a new temple for you. Uh, we claim the promise that you said when even a few of us are gathered together, you're in our midst and, and that you, you have chosen the church um, for a great role. And we pray that you would uh, continue through your Holy Spirit to bring about uh, unity of uh, spirit and unity of purpose. Um, and uh, that we could really uh, uh, be the kind of place that you want to inhabit. Father, we thank you for Jesus, um, because it's in Jesus that we have all of these benefits. And we thank you for your son. In his name, amen. By the way, they mocked it. He would pay for my morphine if he would make me sleep for 48 hours. <laughs> 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 <laughs>